0: BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's Got Your Back.
1: Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast from the Times. I'm Matt Jolly back from the Easter recess break. This week we're talking polling the possibility of a new political party, and my favourite story for some time, the Museum of Brexit. This week I'm joined in the studio by Times Senior Political Correspondent Lucy Fisher, who wonders what we might put in the Museum of Brexit. Times economist Ian Martin asks if a centrist party, another one is being launched, but will they ever get off the ground? But first, polling analyst and founder of Number Crunch of Politics, Matt Singh, on what exactly is going on in the polls.
2: All of the polls in the last month put the Conservatives in the lead. A governing party even narrowly ahead at this point is doing pretty well on any historical comparison. But with the 2017 campaign so fresh in the memory, and much uncertainty on the horizon, most are wary of thinking in those terms. Currently we have two main parties contesting the mantle of least unpopular, with the Lib Dems pretty much where they've been for the last eight years. At some point the stalemate will be broken, but it remains unclear just what that will take. So Matt, I suppose the
1: first question is: Should we even be looking at polls, trusting them, caring about them, reporting on them?
2: I can totally understand the the level of scepticism. The first election I really remember was nineteen ninety two. Which was, has, uh, as yet, even with everything that's happened recently, is still unsurpassed for the biggest industry wide meltdown. But that said, (laughs) um, it, it, polling is the, you know, the only real way. I mean, the only real way to know what people are thinking is to ask them. And this is the, the, the good faith, scientific, objective way to do it. Um, and what the polls have shown, I mean, after the election, as often happens when you get a surprise result, you get a bounce in the direction of the surprise. So Labour, having done better than expected, ended up going into the lead. And since then, it's been a sort of pretty slow, no real dramatic moves, but a, a sort of gradual slide from a a, a bigish Labour lead to a small lead to neck and neck to a to a small Tory lead. Now we're pretty much back where the the election result was. As I say, I think what's um, going on is that neither party is particularly popular both parties are divided to some extent they've got their issues and the, the 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 big issues of the day i mean brexit as as i said before if if you're bored with brexit there isn't much hope for the person <laughs> on the street it's uh, it's not something that lends itself to new news very often so the people are are not too attentive on that. And then the other things that are going on is the sort of internal politics within the parties, which, you know, the the swing voter in Nuneaton really doesn't care about. So, I mean, I think there is a um, a lack of new news. And, of course, the Lib Dems uh, and the the other smaller parties are unable to gain traction. So it is something of a stalemate. And to what
1: extent do polls tell us anything this far back, We've just had a general election, well, just, you know, last year people are at least hoping that there isn't going to be a new one anytime soon so do they there's less i suppose element of risk to answering a poll you know you probably haven't changed your mind you might change your mind when it became a real question so uh, voter intention polls telling us anything of people if people aren't that engaged with what's going
2: on they do tell that you more than people often think because quite often when you've had a a, a big event uh, even one early in the parliament, I mean, 1992 and the ERM uh, Black Wednesday thing is a good uh, example. The, I mean, the polls tend to pick that up, so they give the best sort of barometer of what people are thinking at the time. the The tricky thing at the moment is that, in general, in midterm, you, the, the midterm blues are a thing. You often hear government favourable people saying they are really a thing. Governments generally do do. Uh, worse during the, the, the middle of the term. Um, but by how much is kind of hard to say, so it actually interpreting them can be a little bit tricky. But it's not as though they're not telling us anything.
1: And just before I bring in Lucia, I just want to ask you about one of my pet uh, theories, and I'm not sure this is actually borne out by anything. That if you look at, which is the best sort of theory, uh, if you look <laughs> at uh, evidence-based, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I not think we've had enough of experts, Ian, <laughs> as you well know. Is uh, is looking at uh, the best prime minister question or the leadership questions? Because one of the things that I always remember in the run up to the 2015 election campaign, is that although Labour was ahead in voter intention, David Cameron was miles ahead on leadership and favourability and who would make the best prime minister. And I always felt at some point one of those two had to move, and it turned out it was the voter intention moved, and actually you know David Cameron ended up surprising everyone by winning a majority. Is that what we've – and we saw it a bit actually in the election campaign last year where Jeremy Corbyn's personal rate has improved in the final stages of the campaign – Is that a better barometer of what people really think, because that's what they actually feel about a leader rather than trying to tell us what they might do at some unspecified point in the future?
2: Yeah, in general, those two things tend to track each other pretty closely, but when they don't, quite often the fundamentals, how people perceive the leaders, does tend to be a better indicator. Um, there are two different ways of asking about it. So, the, the sort of the, the which do you prefer question, but then the other um, question, which I think you had in Redbox yesterday about who's doing well or bad, asking them individually, that sort of question tends to be the better indicator. And at the moment, those things look pretty good for Theresa May, or pretty less bad um, than they do for Corbyn.
1: Lucy, the Corbyn's personal polling ratings since Christmas have had mm-hmm. a terrible uh, nose die terribly. More than half of people now say he's doing badly, having been you know, well ahead just before and just after the election last year. I
3: think a lot of it's probably to do with this huge row that's erupted uh, over anti-Semitism and Labour's sort of struggle to contain the fallout of that row and really tackle the problem. Um, I dare say that Jeremy Corbyn's equivocation over um, Syria and um, the gas attack in Douma will will possibly um, see his ratings drop further. And Russia,
1: Russia as well, He's the way um, he reacted Russia, to, to um, the. Well, I'm break. not so
3: sure on Russia. I actually think that, um, and I say this because I, some of, you know, people outside of politics i was talking to you over the weekend um i think that the government's messaging on it was so f- poor back and forth then allowing that Porton Down scientist to come out and sort of say well it's probably you know a state actor <laughs> and we haven't quite actually tracked down where this um novichok came from um i think has created doubt in some people's minds and i think that jeremy corbyn in that instance uh t- in my opinion he was he, he was uh he's actually come up uh, come up trumps by saying let's be cautious, let's take an evidence based approach, let's be absolutely sure, because the government going back and forth with with exactly what their evidence is is unclear. But to get back to to, to, to the point, I, I Jeremy Corbyn is doing much worse in the beginning of the year, and I think it is fascinating. Um, Matt, as you talk about these midterm blues, um, that the it, it is a sign of how badly Labour's doing, that the Conservatives are are still ahead, um, because I uh, you know what what is the this Conservative government doing apart from Brexit? You know, I thought Theresa May had a good a good march with a good kind of um EU summit and her handling of the um, the initial stages of the scruple poisoning was, was 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 good and we saw our allies come and back us. But, you know, crime rising, not much movement being made on kind of housing problem, you know squeeze living standards. I can't believe that, that that frankly, they're not feeling worse midterm beliefs. I
2: think for a, a lot of people, what they're doing, and uh, I mean this um, sincerely, a, a lot of people will, will take the view that they're keeping Corbyn out. Because I think for so many people, including some uh, traditional Labour voters, particularly in the sort of, the not the London Labour voters, but the sort of area in the post-industrial heartlands, the, the areas that swung to the Tories in the general election... Keeping Corbyn out is—I mean—he is a big deal breaker for a lot of people. And it's interesting, Ian. That for for it's
1: incredibly difficult, as you know, Neil Kinnock found that the, once you lose one election, mm. to try and come back next time is really difficult. And it doesn't feel like in the last 12 months. Next week is it will be a year since Theresa May called the election. It doesn't feel like Jeremy Corbyn's done anything to seal the deal with a section of the electorate that he didn't get in mm. June last year.
4: No, I mean it's it's not impossible, Heath. Did it? Heath lost an election and then came back and won 1970. So there are precedents. Yeah, I mean, but I, I suppose think... he had
1: he did have the advantage of having been prime minister to sort of have a second go at convincing somebody that you're up to the job. Having not done it is, is well, he was a new, he was a or... new leader of the
4: opposition. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, where I think, I mean, I think Corbyn is. We should give him credit, really, because you look back almost a year ago exactly. The entire pundit class, myself included was posing the question, how low could Corbyn go? Could Labour go as low as 24, 25 points? How big was the Tory majority going to be? I never thought it'd be sort of 100 plus. But it it seemed to be that the Tories were going to get a majority of at least 50. Where the polling was really interesting and where I think, I mean, I love polling as a journalist. Uh, It very often fills a gap when there's nothing else (laughs) happening um and for me clear that's not
1: what's happened with the podcast this is a very important issue for us to be discussing of course not but i but as a political
4: addict i i love it and last year reminded me of another moment where the polls were very useful which was 2007 and i can remember with then patty hennessy who's political editor of the sunday telegraph there was nothing happening in the middle of the summer. So we put out an ICM poll asking about Brown and leadership. And it was just at that point in, the, in that summer, August, where Brown was having a really good run. And it was before the things had started to move on, the election that never was. And when you then see those numbers come in, and you just see the gain, the leap that there is, I mean, never believe pundits who say, oh, Nothing really changes the fundamentals. Things a group of people are moved by news events or by someone displaying leadership. That's what fascin- fascinated me about last year. To what extent did Corbyn and Labour improve in that campaign, or was that there, there an element of pollsters having to revise their methodology mid-campaign because they'd failed to spot that he was going to do better? What happened?
2: I think it was uh, much more of the former. Um, I mean, Corbyn's personal ratings were dire. Um, the, the Labour Party's ratings were, I mean, we're talking worse than Michael Foot before the 1983 election. I mean, there was really nothing good to say. Corbyn obviously had a good campaign. Labour had a good campaign. Not just at the 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 air war, but obviously the way that they ran the the ground war was was pretty effective too. If anything, the 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 changes that um, some pollsters made during the campaign were actually, if anything, were to it, sort of in the opposite direction to tighten their turnout filters because mm. they didn't believe that. I mean, part of it was that because they were getting too many politically engaged young people, they were getting these ridiculous youthquake turnout figures, which they were trying to row back against a little bit too hard. But also just the fact that things were moving so much during the campaign, and and, and like you were saying, this this perception uh, that turned out to be wrong—that that the fundamentals don't change—those so those things actually pushed in the opposite direction. So I think we, we as you say, we do have to give Corbyn and Labour a lot of credit for that campaign.
4: It was that they, yeah, and Ian McNichol had put together a really good kind of grassroots, well organised. Campaign at short notice and did a terrific job for which he was then, of course, fired. But this being the Labour I Party, I wouldn't
3: give Ian McNichol and much credit for the for the campaign.
1: But I remember a couple. I think it was a couple of weeks out from the election. Right, writing a red box. If you sort of just step back and looked looked at it quietly, the Labour poll rating had been going up. There yep. were signs, yep. and I remember writing. I am not predicting that Jeremy Corbyn is going to be prime minister, but. Mm. it was going to be bad for the Tories if it wasn't the 200-seat majority yeah. that, that yeah. some people... Yeah. I mean, it turned out it wasn't even a majority at all. But there are, if you if you sort of follow the trend rather than, mm. you know, up two points on yesterday, down yeah. one point on the day before, but if you follow the trend over a few weeks or months and you can see things happening. Exactly. Also,
4: something really refreshing about it was that covering politics, you could sense that shift against Theresa May, whose support was very widespread, but not deep. It was shallow. Yeah, and when you had that nothing has changed moment, and that week, <laughs> stop laughing, Matt. And, um, and that, that week around the manifesto, just the public perception of her shifted 180 degrees, and that had an impact on voting intention.
1: Well, some people did point out that she was rubbish before all of that, Ian. But we won't. Well,
4: so did I. <laughs>
1: Not as vehemently as you it after did. After everyone else saw that was the difference. I did it when she was still walking on water. Um, Matt, just apart from leadership things and that sort of thing, what what else should we look out for in polls? What are the interesting trends which are going on at the moment?
2: Well, the interesting um, trend. I mean, there hasn't been a uh, much movement really in that many. Th- I mean, there are only a limited number of things, obviously, that polls the track over the longer term but if you look at obviously the the top line numbers haven't moved much the personal ratings of the leaders have sort of moved back a bit towards where they were so better for may weaker for corbyn on brexit there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of movement i think it's still you know 90 plus depending how you ask the question basically 90 plus percent of people are saying the same thing as before um economic competence since since no one's really talked about the economy recently i think (laughs) people have stopped polling it as well um that doesn't seem to be that different the Tories doing a bit better but weakened over you know certainly compared with where they were a couple of years ago um so at the risk of sounding like I'm saying nothing has changed. Um, <laughs> <But> <laughs> not even, much has changed. But even from our point of view, sometimes that is interesting.
3: I, can ask you, I think it's really interesting you say that people have kind of gone off um, polling the economy because, to my mind, I would assume that frankly, economic self-interest is a huge part of how um, many people vote. And, and that's one reason I was so interested by the result last year and that clearly many people thought that there did need to be more investment in, in public services. Um, mm. But 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 it, is that not the case? Is 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 kind of identity and value politics kind of equally uh, as important as, as, as the macroeconomy or kind of personal finances? It has
2: become very important at the moment, and uh, I mean, g- traditionally the two biggest fundamental indicators are perceptions of the leaders, as we talked about, and perceptions on the economy. In fact, I think I am right in saying that since nineteen oh six, no government has gone on to lose the popular vote without a recession an official currency devaluation, or a world war. Hmm. So, I mean, the economy is pretty um, important. It's just it, it, it's not high on the political yeah. radar, um, so it's not being asked about as much. But, I, I mean, certainly if the economy turned really bad, then I think it would shoot up pretty quickly. So I don't think it's really dropped. It, I don't think it's become less important. It's just less talked
3: about. Mm. Or alternatively, if, if the Conservatives are quite canny and hold back, build up this sort of war chest, um, with the kind of better headwinds and then delay investment into public sector maybe budget 2019 mm-hmm. even 2020 so that by the time of the next election it's people are feeling really out. good yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah. Public services
2: are, are pretty salient although that tends to be treated as a separate category from the the macro economy but yeah public services are pretty high up there still.
1: Well, it's fascinating stuff. But uh, if we're saying that nothing has changed amongst the main parties, maybe the answer is a brand new party. This is Ian Martin.
4: Everyone is forming a new political party, it seems. Uh, This week we heard that one of the founders of Love Film has put up 50 million quid for one new variant. Uh, I think it's rather appropriate that it's Love Film, which is a defunct pre-2008 crisis uh, brand, a bit like New Labour. But call any new party what you want. Renewal, rewind, onward, backward, not forwards. It's highly unlikely to work. And why is that? The voting system and electoral geography are stacked in favour of the existing parties love them or hate them we all know fun at all are you even
1: because it wasn't i think it was the last time <laughs> Lu- the last time lucy was on we had um a panoply of new political parties including the rubbish party I think we, we were going to join <laughs> the me, rubbish party yeah um uh but you don't think this, this has got legs is it, it do you think it's a slight obsession of journalists who are a bit bored of what's not happening in westminster it'd be quite exciting if there was a new party that actually took off
4: oh it'd certainly be a terrific Story, yeah, and I think th- I think it's a, a genuine reflection of the fact that there's a large group of voters who feel unrepresented, and those are people who you'd regard as economically quite liberal, um, uh, socially liberal, uh, Blairite-ish, without the foreign policy <laughs> connotations, but modern centrist, and that's probably thirty percent of the a third of the country. And doesn't actually have in uh, in England anyway, and we'll come back to Scotland and Wales, which I think are always forgotten from the London perspective. Doesn't necess- those voters don't necessarily have a party to vote for? So it's a it's a genuine angst and anger, even on the part of my liberal friends. But that doesn't mean that the electoral reality is anything other than almost impossible. I mean, anything could happen. On Marsh style, and just saw the revival of Jeremy Corbyn. So it's not it. It's not totally impossible that someone could manage to get all of the d- disparate groups together, run a, run sufficient candidates, but to get 326 seats in the House in the House of Commons, to get over 40% of the vote, to smash the old party structures, which are more than a century old strikes me as highly unlikely.
2: Or even to win one seat, which I think is
4: another <laughs> point all, yeah. because of the, the nature of the electoral system. Which, actually, UKIP bears that out, doesn't it? UKIP is one of the most, love it or loathe it, one of the most consequential political developments of the last century. It's the party which applied pressure to David Cameron. Uh, you could argue that it delivered the referendum, partly responsible for Brexit, but was an electoral failure in conventional terms and only won two seats. uh, And they were conservative defections. So even that, with four and a half million voters at its peak and really running British politics uh, to some extent or or having the Tories on the run, that didn't turn into anything more than a couple of seats. Do you think
1: that this Blairite, Cleggite, Cameroon, Liberal centre ground thing actually is an issue beyond... Dare I say it, some of our commentary colleagues, because you've got the Labour Party out of the far, the further left than they've been for a long time. The Tory Party ran quite a uh, right wing yeah. campaign at the election last year, and between them got over 80% of the vote. Did, people didn't seem like they were that put off.
4: Two party politics and is they, back.
1: And they didn't, they also, neither of those parties seems to think that uh, trying to appeal to. That's true. Mushy centrist is the way to electoral victory.
4: I mean, one of our uh, one of our colleagues, Matthew Paris, responded to a piece I wrote about this last week and made the, the made the very sensible point that, of course, a new centre party is not necessarily just a danger to if it happens, not just a danger to the Labour Party. Such a party could conceivably take votes off Conservatives. I don't discount that possibility, but further to what Matt said earlier about Tory voters fearing um, a Corbyn uh, administration, fearing a Labour government, that's a big part of it. Lots of Tory voters aren't particularly keen on Theresa May or aren't even particularly keen on the government's agenda. But when it comes down to it at a general election, the, the, the punters are pretty savvy about it. They know that ultimately it's a it's a binary choice about who, which of the two main parties is going to end up in power. You do get periods of tactical voting. It's possible that you could uh, see a new centre party become a souped-up version of the Liberal Democrats, which ends up holding the balance of power. Mm-hmm. That's, not, that's not inconsequential. That could matter in 10 years' time. But there's also another reason that it might be being... Um, this plan might be being hatched by centrists and some of them admit it which is that they actually are out to stop corbyn mm-hmm. so that if they can just take away 10 if they can take away 10 percent of the vote from labour and corbyn it um it ensures that he never makes it to number 10 but that's not much of a, a pitch or an offer to, <laughs> to the punter is it in as you said in Nuneaton or in uh the the other thing which fascinates me about this and the london-centric nature of the conversation Is the just the assumption that there is such a thing as UK politics. It's much more complex and interesting than that. Scotland post devolution has developed its own really distinct politics. You have to spend time there to see that just it's London seems very, very distant. It has a plethora of parties. It has Scottish Liberal Democrats which have Okay, they're in trouble at the moment, but they have very deep roots in the borders or in the northeast of Scotland. They're not just going to disappear. They're they're in for the long haul as they were in the 50s, 60s and 70s. The Tories have revived. The SNP has at least a third of the vote and spans tartan Tories in the glens and um, modern centrist voters who are also in favour of Scottish independence. Then there's the Labour Party, which its brand is still even despite the Corbyn business is still very strong with a lot of labor unionists staying in the labor party to see off the SNP. So the idea that a bunch of people from London are going to turn up and say, now, listen, we've got this great new marketing (laughs) initiative. (laughs) It's not so much like love film, but it's, it's, it's kind of love actually as a political party. And uh, we've got all the marketing and we've done all the polling. And then this is how it's going to work. And this is the segment of voters. It's going to cut out. I don't think that applies in Scotland. I don't see how it applies in Wales. I don't think it really works in the northwest of England. Certainly it doesn't work in the southwest of England, where the Liberals are traditionally quite strong, but there's also a Eurosceptic tinge to things. Does it work in the Midlands? I don't know. Does it work in London? Well, Labour seems to be very, very strong in London. So where is the geographical groundswell? Where is the, the source, the base for this party?
1: Lucy, one of the things that the driving uh, the reason this keeps coming up is because of the problems in the Labour Party and the so-called moderates uh, mm-hmm. Labour MPs who who have spent the last what is it almost three years hoping that something turns up, yeah, which is the trigger for them to break away from Jeremy Corbyn. But if they just you know whether it's two or three or even ten Labour MPs broke away, it could all well, that could just be a damp squib, couldn't it? Before they count down to being you know deselected and, yeah. and losing their seats.
3: Yeah, I think it. Um, they're at risk of losing the moment quite quite quickly. Actually, um, we could you know in the next twelve months see the um, trigger ballots um, happen whereby a, a Labour MP needs to get um, a certain a certain proportion of votes. Currently, h- half a straight majority. Uh, of nominations in their local party to be automatically reconfirmed uh, as the candidate. Um, It looks likely that that, um, those rules are going to change to make it much harder for incumbents to just be automatically reconfirmed without having to take on contenders. So um, I I think that actually some of these moderates, if they wait much longer at risk of just looking like if they start something new, it's really just because they're running away because they knew they'd be ousted uh, anyway. And I do think it's very difficult. I, I think it's interesting that Vince Cable has signalled that, you know, the Lib Dems and he might be open to some sort of coalition.
1: They're basically saying that if something new and exciting <laughs> comes along, we're up for it. We're up we're, for we're, it. We're, we're up
3: for it. And then we've had, you know, the likes of Anna Soubry say that, you know, if Jacob Rees-Mogg or that kind of wing of the party um, takes the helm after Theresa May, you know, she's out of here. And I think that in itself um poses problems that don't always appear um, obvious um in, in London among the sort of chattering classes, as Ian said. But you know, for many Labour voters, the idea of voting for a party that has Tories in it, you know, even ex Tories, is complete anathema. It's a misunderstanding of the tribal nature of the politics and as well as all the kind of all the kind of um logistical problems with starting a new party, like, you know, having no structures, regional, local branch structures in place and no data. Um, I think you you know there's a reason that this sort of there's a huge spectrum of people in both the Labour Party and the Conservative Party and in fact they overlap you've got the sort of the right wing of Labour is, is further to the right than the left wing of, of the Conservative Party um, even kind of economically in, in some areas um and I just think that how how are those kind of huge spectrums kept together? Well, it's under the kind of the heritage, and a sort of a vision, a sort of a history, even if it's a mythological history, mm-hmm. that all the voters or supporters buy into. And that's just incredibly difficult to create from scratch.
1: And it's interesting. The big problem is trying to get the stars to align. It feels like it's this summer that the Labour MPs need to, if they're going to do it, they need to do something. But tory mps who are unhappy with the current direction still think that their party is rescuable in quotes they think that if you know yeah. amber Rudd could become leader next week and they'd be happy with that so well, it's not those people aren't about to break away you know all at the same time
4: history suggests that the, the tories will reinvent themselves and that they won't choose jacob reese smog and that actually the, the winner will probably because they have to remember be narrowed down to a final two that go out to the membership I think the priority will be in stopping Jacob being one of his final two because he might win with a depleted membership. On the Labour side, the thing that puzzles me about my Labour friends and family who are members is, and I've posed this question to them, is if there is all this money and centrist discontent, why not use it to create a moderate alternative to Momentum? Why not go out and try and recruit two or three hundred thousand moderate Labour uh, Labour voters? Go go around the doors and say, "Do you want there to be an alternative to the Tory Party? Do you want the Labour Party taken back?" That, to me, seems possible with fifty million quid or even twenty million quid and a dedicated band of uh, of people. The MPs wouldn't even have to leave. They're simply setting up a, a centrist organisation, Momentum can't complain momentum does what it does um, within the rules of the Labour Party but no one seems to really want to try that why not try and save the Labour Party well there's some helpful advice there for the, <laughs> for the
1: Labour MPs constantly hoping that someone turn up um in just a moment we're going to talk about what the Museum of Brexit and what should be in it we'll be back after this short break
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: Welcome back to the Red Box Politics Podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Jolly, joined in the studio this week by Matt Singh, Ian Martin, and this is Lucy Fisher.
3: Rummage in your attics, dig out your shoeboxes, reclaim the bag of tat that you are set to fling into recycling. Eurosceptics want the bump you've collected from 45 years of following the Leave movement. Rosettes, pamphlets and other ephemera are all requested for the new Museum of Brexit. This new archiving project will undoubtedly prompt smirks from Remainers, but the breadth and extent of history it seeks to cover is a timely reminder that the seeds of Leave were sown long before the 2016 referendum and the claims of voter data manipulation in the final countdown.
1: Now Lucy if I'm absolutely honest my initial response to this was to <laughs> uh have a laugh, but actually it, it, the idea that so- you want somebody to collect this you want somebody in fifty years to go into a museum and see you know the story of how all this happened um and you're right um people with chucking it all out so yes. it's it's I like the idea that people to collect all this as you describe it bump. <laughs>
3: Yeah, well, I think, I think, you know, it's easy to sort of, um, for everything to feel sort of parochial when you're in the moment. But when you step back, you know, this is a huge moment in our history, whether you're, you were for or pro Brexit. Um, and I think it is, it's a good idea that, that, um, people start collecting the records of it now. Um, I'm not sure how much of, of the sort of day-to-day quotidian items will be of interest, but, um, I think it's, it's interesting that the people that have put this together, you know, calling on sort of MPs if they've got draft speeches of their contributions to the Maastricht debate, um, and, and things like that, you know, might, might be of interest. I bet Bill Cash has. I'm sure he has. Um, <laughs> might be of interest, um, both to kind of inform the general public in sort of decades to come and also serve as a, as, as a serious resource for academics. Um, and, And I am a big fan of these kind of museums. There's one in Amberley, um, a little village in Sussex where my husband comes from, which is dedicated solely to the industrial heritage of the South East, which sounds an incredibly niche subject, but it's actually quite quirky and you can get a grip on... On, a, on an area and the kind of idiosyncratic nature of that mm. region more than many national um, m- museums. So um, I'm pretty pro the, the Museum of Brexit or, or Museum of Sovereignty, to give it Museum a of form, Sovereignty, as they call it, which
1: is going to chronicle the story of the struggle <laughs> of Britain Britain's independence, as if they're sort of slaves of the Deep South, uh, which I'm not sure it is quite. So, Ian, um, as a uh, Brexiteer, what would you, apart from, you know, the, the combined works of your columns during the campaign... <laughs> Which is obviously. (laughs) I don't think anyone's interested in that. But um, would be nice to read them for the
4: first time. Um, What what would you What would you put into the museum? Well, I mean, all sorts of possibilities spring to mind with artificial intelligence and robotics and all that sort of thing. We could reconstruct Nigel Farage. What a great moment! Nigel Farage in there. He's not doing anything else. (laughs) (laughs) Stick him in a jiffy bag and send him off to the museum. I think it's a a terrific if if a slightly troubling um, initiative, I, th- I think part of the problem is that the people behind it are Brexiteers. So I don't, I don't think they're aiming for a neutral um, project. Uh, I do think there's an important job to be done in terms of collecting the, the history of this. There's a fashion at the moment, coming back into fashion, the idea of oral history of actually just recording this stuff. I think there are already some voices from the whole Brexit Struggle, which was not a two or three year affair, it was a thirty or forty year story that have already been lost, people like Rodney leach who founded uh, who funded open Europe and was a major player on the Eurosceptic um, side for a long time, sadly died um, around the time of the referendum. but there are other voices that do need to be recorded on both sides, whether that be people like John Kerr, who were at the heart of the, the, foreign office and, uh, the establishment's view of how Europe should be put together and then also campaigners on both sides. So I, th- I think what I would hope once this has, uh, not happened, because, um, I suspect it's probably an idea that's come from knowing some of the people involved from standing around at a pub in Westminster saying, let's, <laughs> let's have, let's have a museum. I don't know what you mean. Yeah, <laughs> if, if those are the trustees, then I wouldn't hold your breath. <laughs> Uh, but still, what I hope it does is that I hope it prompts someone, uh, someone else, a, else to do it properly. A, a university yeah. or someone to start collecting some of this testimony and to start thinking about an archive. And there's going to be, once all of this is out the way in the mid sort of 2020s or even later, there is going to be a fantastic, possibly not bestseller, but there's going to be a fant- fantastic historical book. For someone to write, an academic to write, detailing the whole story of Britain's relationship from, well, from the Macmillan attempts to get to take Britain in post, um, you know, in the late 1950s post-war, right up to Brexit. It's a fascinating story. Some of it will be lost in the, some of it will, is is not lost, but is, hasn't yet been seen because the archives won't be open. Cannot wait to see the uh The full set of papers between Number Ten and the Treasury and all that sort of stuff. When they realise that they might actually lose the referendum, that'll that'll be (laughs) hilarious. Uh, So so there's all there's there's all of that stuff to come. But I I I just I'm I'm slightly sceptical that these um, people are going to get off the ground.
1: The um uh, your point about the sort of the voices and the people you know campaign partly because they were seen as a fringe, slightly oh you're a settled thing. They were seen as a sort of fringe cause they were yes so they weren't you know given big sit-down interviews and uh, endless record you know it, it, well until obviously uh, Nigel Farage's weekly appearances yeah. on question time but there a lot of people who had been campaigning for a long time but weren't central to yes, the sort they, of they were, history
4: they were yes they were a fringe oddity and the reality is that a lot of people's opinions shifted yeah. so Nigel Lawson helped to bring down Margaret Thatcher over this question. Now, he has a narrow technical explanation about what he was arguing about over the ERM, but really the Tory rebels who brought down Thatcher were saying that she was hectoring and insufficiently pro-European and outside the mainstream. It's quite a, it's, You have to go quite far into the story until you get to the point where they say they actually want to leave the European Union. A lot of those Um, big mainstream Tory figures who ended up backing leave as late as the renegotiation that David Cameron conducted were still saying, and I think many of them still believing that they were looking for a way to stay in their associate membership. Not all of them. I can't speak for, for Lamont, but that's a story of an evolving uh, view over the course of 20, 30 years. I think what's remarkably consistent though, and which, And it shouldn't have come as a shock to the British establishment, is that the polling on European integration was pretty consistent. The salience ebbed and flowed. Most of the time, most voters were not worried about it. But when you actually asked them about the political integrationist project, they were sceptical from Maastricht onwards. And then it's immigration, of course, which makes it salient again. And, well, we all know what happened next.
1: No matter, there was a YouGov poll a couple of weeks ago that showed that fifty-five percent of people were bored by Brexit. Do you think <laughs> there is an appetite? Do you think we're going to be queuing around the block for a museum
2: of Brexit? Good question. Um, I mean, it's certainly, um, well, as Lucy said, it's a very significant moment in history, and something you know, in, in in the decades to come, it it probably will be looked back on with you know great curiosity and interest, and so. I can certainly see in the future a, a, a very solid demand for it, but um, you know, as as for whether that sort of arises in the shorter term, um, possibly yes, possibly no. It's 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 quite hard to say. Um, one thing I'd like to pick up on actually about what um, Ian was saying about the the sort of the, the the public views on in 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 relation to to Europe. We know now, regardless of what the polls were saying at the time, we know because we have these British Election Study data that. The It really wasn't, um, I mean, obviously things had, had closed up, but it really wasn't, it was really not close until the short campaign began. And then what Lee managed to do was not only sway the undecideds, but also get millions of people who never normally vote to, to, to show up. And it was really that that, uh, that did it
1: just goes to confound the, the idea that campaigns don't change anything and it's all decided beforehand. Well I mean
2: nobody really thought about referendums Yeah, that's because, more of an election because thing because that's when
1: people turn to turn to it and focus on be, it.
2: because people I mean in election you people always have the default choice of the party they normally vote for in referendum you don't but um, yeah I mean certainly that campaign was uh, clearly crucial
1: but I think also, because of the way that the political campaign has changed, you have, probably have fewer leaflets and rosettes and all that sort of thing, you know, because so much of it is done online, trying to pull pull that stuff together, the physical stuff of campaigns. I think it's really interesting. I remember last summer going to the... There's a uh, museum in Lossiemouth in Scotland, where Ramsay MacDonald grew up, uh, and Len lived, and they've recreated his office. And you could just... I mean, this is just you know a load of old stuff, and if you recreated Theresa May's office now, you'd say, well, that's just an office. But now, you know, it, you can see that that's where prime minister sat and did his did his business uh now we um i did ask some red box readers um in this morning's email what they would put in the museum um i mean i think we could probably say they're all mostly from remainers uh (laughs) nicholas russell says i would put nigel farage jacob reese mark and jeremy corbyn together in a soundproof room feed them through a hatch and leave them there until they die uh, Guy Clapperton said, you were asking what we put in the Brexiteers Museum. I think every last shred of the country's prosperity and dignity would probably do it. And Ollie Parrish, uh, had, um, <laughs> several suggestions. Uh, one, he suggested for the marketing of the museum. He said perhaps posters could be published indicating that visitors would actually save money by visiting the museum. But when they arrive, they'll be asked to pay 39 billion pounds. <laughs> he said the entry policy would uh, they would want to take back control of who could and could not visit the museum conventional wisdom would suggest an australian based uh, points based system and then finally he suggests that everyone would want to turn up if there were blue audio guides uh, to foster patriotism among the voters they make their way around, uh, which I thought were all of which were excellent suggestions. If you've got some suggestions, which, um, and you're not a very angry remainer, uh, then, um, email them to redbox at thetimes.co.uk and, uh, well, I'll share some of them on the redbox email later in the week. If you've got any other final suggestions of the personal item you'd like to put in?
3: Well, I think obviously you'd have to have that. Bloody bus <laughs> parked in the big kind the of museum. The museum could be the, on the bus. The, um... the
2: bus could be the museum. Someone said that. A Times didn't
3: they? reader was suggesting they yeah. could the country. That's not a bad idea. I also think, um, having, having been on that bus, um, or at least the attendant hacks bus that sort of sadly followed after it. Um, uh, I think that there, there could definitely be, um, a room dedicated to the sort of, Props brandished aloft by Boris from babies to asparagus to pasties.
1: Did he kiss a fish? Oh, he definitely <laughs> kissed a it... fish. <laughs> oh, God,
3: yeah. And maybe maybe a wig of his blonde thatch sort of
1: commemorated um, as I want, <laughs> I I want as somebody well. to find the gorilla costume of the guy who turned up to protest him <laughs> and then got punted. It was like a scuffle involving the madness of the gorilla costume. <laughs> that was a huge fan of. Um, and did you, I know you followed the story closely. Did you ever get your hands on a ticket to B-Pop Live?
3: Um, no, I I I don't think they ever got as far as printing the tickets. I think they I think they they paid a deposit for the sort of how many sort of thirty thousand strong arena um, that they were going to rent. But um,
4: it's like Woodstock. Yeah, no. If you can remember it, you weren't there or something. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody now thinks. Of, well, I must have maybe been we were there. Didn't it, maybe it did happen. With, <laughs> it was a great night with Buck's Fizz and two
1: fifths of five or whatever it was. <laughs> Anyway, um, thank you very much for that. Um, your bumper, extra long edition of uh, this week's uh, Times Red Box podcast. As ever, subscribe um, on iTunes, on your Android device, or wherever you get your podcasts from, um, so each episode turns up uh, every week. You can subscribe to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. But for now, from Matt Singh, Ian Martin, Lucy Fisher, and me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.